Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. With 20 minutes on the clock, we return to the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. You might remember last time uh, that the Ark of the Covenant, we were reminded, had been taken in battle during the reign of King Saul by the armies of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And yet God, through his own means, having nothing to do with the Israelites, his own power showed himself sovereign and mighty and got the Ark back. The Israelites, in their weakness, lost the Ark of the Covenant, which was to represent the presence of God among the people, and they lost it in their weakness. And God, in his strength, without their help, got it back. And the Israelites weren't really sure what to do with it, so they left it at this guy's house for years. Now, David is trying to establish both a national identity for the people of Israel his own kingdom, and he's also trying to bring God and the worship of God back into the forefront of, of life among uh, the people of, of Israel. And so they go and they get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you remember last time, the problem was they didn't do it right. They were instructed in the law on how to properly transport the Ark of the Covenant, but they were kind of casual. They didn't care. And, and this, uh, this one fellow here, Uzzah, just casually went up and touched the ark, and God struck him down. Some have noted the comparisons between Uzzah and uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who God killed, members of the early church. It does seem at times like when God is establishing a thing or reestablishing a thing, uh, he, he works in a unique way, either what we might consider very positive, or I don't want to call it negative because it's the work of God, but it's it's not it's not negative from it's negative from our human point of view. Sometimes things have to be cut out, removed, dealt with, and so in this sense, you know, as God's worship and symbolically His presence are being returned to the center of national life, they weren't doing it right, and God says no. I'm not going to stand for that because if I stand for it now, it's just going to be worse and worse and worse as time goes on. So what they did is David was, was angry with God and he was afraid of what was happening. And so they put it in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. Now in verse 12, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So they, they were saying, look, Obed-Edom wasn't a bad guy or anything, but in the last three months, things have noticeably improved. Is that because the Ark is magic? No. Now, I just noticed that Raiders of the, the Lost Ark is back on one of my streaming services, and I'm going to be honest, I'm probably watching that movie soon. Um, you know, th This is how these kind of things go in my house. I'm sure you wanted to know this. But uh, basically, on there are nights where Angie is up, and so we watch whatever she wants to watch. And then there are nights after we put the kids to bed where I can tell she's going to fall asleep halfway through whatever show we're watching. And so when I notice she's asleep, I just pause it. We'll come back to that show. And then I go find a movie that she could care less about. Um, you know, I could rewatch Ocean's Eleven for the 
literally thousandth time. Or I could, uh, you know, find some other action movie that she doesn't care about, you know, was a Christopher Nolan film or something. And I'm going to watch Rares the Lost Ark next time she's goes to sleep on the couch early. Um, but it's not magic. It's not like, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the, where the Ark is presented as this sort of like mystical, magical thing. The power wasn't in the Ark. The power was in God. And he had chosen among the people of Israel to represent his presence through and in the Ark. And if you don't know what the Ark looks like, Google Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a pretty darn good representation of what it looked like as far as we can tell. But the point is, is that they attributed what God was doing to the presence of the ark. It's not that the ark was powerful. It's that God's presence was there. And so David was told, hey, if you heard that beeping sound, near as I can tell, when I set 20 minutes on the clock, I also triggered a timer. That was new. We've been doing this show now for, gosh, how many episodes? Episode 73? Uh, and that's the first time I've done that. Well, there we go. So anyway, David's told that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has in it because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, which is Jerusalem, with rejoicing. So David has had time to process. Three months I don't think is insignificant. David was mad at God for the death of Uzzah. David had time to process what had happened. And you know how I know that he had processed some, processed some things? Look at this. At verse 13, when all who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all the Israelites were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, what's the difference? Last time he went in his own strength, with his own wisdom, they got the biggest cart, they did it the world's way, they kind of did it without any care, hey, we'll get a big cart, we'll put it on, have we thought this through, are we doing this right? No, and we're just going to casually move along as if this is no big deal. This time, they're walking in humility, they get going and then they pause and they sacrifice to the Lord, hey, we are, we are serious about this this time. They aren't just carrying it in a cart. You know, the priests have put in the, the poles and the, the, the Levites are carrying it in. They're doing things the right, th- the right way. They're worshiping the Lord. It's, it's not a procession of, a, pro- a procession of David's power and his military might. It's a procession of the people of God worshiping God. And yes, the king is there, but the king is not there to display his own strength. The king this time is there to be the chief worshiper of Yahweh. And verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, she despised him in her heart. Micah was David's first wife. She's the daughter of the former king, King Saul, and she has had a rough go. And we've talked a lot about that in previous episodes, so I won't get back into it. But that being said, why is it that she despises David? It says, as she saw David dancing and leaping before the Lord, she despised him. Why is it that she despised him? Let's put a pin in there. We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So they have a a tabernacle reestablished, but now the tabernacle is in Jerusalem in the center of Israel's national life. 
Uh, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before Yahweh. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. Now, that's significant, by the way, because as we've talked about many times, both on this podcast and other stuff uh, that Faith on Hill puts out, um, that women are often not treated with that kind of equality in ancient history. And so David is, is, is showing everyone equal favor as they come to worship the Lord. That's significant. And that's something we should take note of. And the people went to their homes. Verse 20, David returned to his home to bless his household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in the full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. What's she saying? Let me, let me modernize what she's saying. She's being super sarcastic. This, this is like a subtweet. This is a, uh, you know, she's trying to do a sick burn. Like she, what she is saying is, you should have been out in your regal robes Instead, you were wearing the clothes of a commoner. You should have been out there as the king should act. Instead, you danced around like a common person. And the servant girls, and I went over this. I went back and forth. Is this a sexual thing? Is, is, is he saying, David, you were dancing, dancing it up in front of the slave girls and, and you liked that attention? I don't think so. Now, that's not because it couldn't be that. I think I've been pretty clear. Like some Bible teachers seem so bent on like trying to like wipe away any of the sins or mistakes of of biblical characters. The Bible doesn't do that, so why should we? However, I don't think that's what's going on here. Any vulgar fellow would, what I think she's talking about, you could also say common fellow would. And I think what's going on here is that she has an idea of how the king should act because she was raised in the house of her father, Saul, the king. Here's an idea of how the king should act. Here's an idea of what a noble person does. And she has this kind of set idea. And David, and the reason I think this is because of how David responds. David responds in verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before Yahweh. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And when Micah, and Micah the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Ooh, that's loaded. We'll come back to that. But first, his response was not about any like accusations of, of infidelity or anything like that. His response was about worship. And that's why I think she is talking about how the king should act. And what he is saying is, you think it's undignified for me to be among the people worshiping God. I will be more undignified. I will humble myself more before God because that is what is right. But these people that you don't value, Michael, the slave girls, the commoner, the low people, they will know that what I am doing is right. Let's modernize that. There are churches full of very... Quote, unquote, if you're on the audio only, I'm doing air quotes, respectable, supposedly people, respectable churches. And then they look around at churches where people are passionate about God and maybe uh, churches aren't 
as, as high, you know, the, the, the general populace of the congregation is not as well-heeled or white-collar as this other church, and they kind of look down. I remember I was interviewing, before I came to Faith on Hill, I was interviewing uh, with a different church, and I was talking to uh, somebody, and I said, out of curiosity, because I, I came to Faith on Hill and our denomination from outside, from a different group of churches, and I was interviewing with this church, which was part of a different group of churches, and I, I said, um, what, what's the impression of the group of churches that I come from? Just, just out of curiosity. And I knew that I was not going to be a fit for that church when he said, well, honestly, you guys are just a bunch of contractors and plumbers. And I said, what's wrong with that? And I realized that the church I was interviewing with was a, was a upper middle class white church. And I don't mean that like white people are bad as a political or racial thing. But what I'm saying is there does tend to be a type of church that is very upper middle class, very white, and they have a tendency to look, let's be honest, they hire upper middle class white people only as their staff member. I grew up blue collar. Uh, I'm not uneducated. I'm not, you know, I'm well-spoken, that kind of thing, but, or at least well enough spoken. Uh, but, but uh, this idea that like there was a, a prejudice that was there and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to fit there. That's what's going on with Michael. She sees herself as better than the average Israelite. She sees herself as better than them. David, who came from nothing, who rose up from a shepherd that no one cared about. When, when Samuel the prophet came to anoint one of Jesse's sons, the king of Israel, he said to Jesse, get your sons. And Jesse got all of his sons except David. David was so unimportant in the family that they didn't care. David knows where he came from. And so he is saying, hey, we're all equal before God. God has has." so great, so powerful, so beyond us that for any of us to try to pretend that we are above or better than, there's no place for that in the worship of God, the people of God. And I believe that that is a spirit that we need to recapture in the American church. Those of us who come from more humble means should not look down on Christians who come from uh, wealth or or, or, uh, resources or possessions. But we have to break down these barriers and say, like, look, let's be honest. There are rich white churches that want nothing to do with poor white churches. And then white churches in general, quite often when people talk about the church in our area, if we're honest, if people start listing churches in our area, that list will almost be exclusively white churches because we don't think about the Vietnamese church or the Korean church or the Hispanic church or the Eastern European church, except that maybe the Eastern European church aren't... (laughs) I'm not going to get into that. I'm Eastern European, so I'm, I'm just going to leave that one alone. What I'm saying is, is there are these divisions that exist. I heard that, and you say, well, that's not me. That's probably not you. Praise the Lord. But I, I was reading a, a thing uh, a while back about a, a pastor from a well-known group of churches, and that group of churches sent a team to his city, and they said, like, your church is the only church in this area that seems to be doing well, and all of our churches in this city are struggling. Why is the church dying here? And he said, the white church is struggling here. And he walked him around his neighborhood and he said, here's all these churches that you're, you in your research did not factor in. There's a Haitian church there. There's a Hispanic church there. There's a Korean church there. They are busting at the seams, but you didn't consider them. That's something that for us to think about. Also, 
I do not believe that the only time the spirit is moving is when I'm having an emotional high in church. I do not believe that the only passionate worship of God is when people have their hands raised and their eyes closed tight on a Sunday morning while a song is being played. At the same time, there, there does seem to be something about a exuberance, a, a, a lack of abandon, you know, the sort of just giving ourselves in worship to the Lord that is promoted here. And I think that's something for us to consider as we worship the Lord, however that looks, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through song, whether it's through fellowship, whether it's through the study of God, whether it's through giving, whether it's through active physical service and abandon in our worship of God that we just set ourselves out fully to it. Now it says in verse 23 that Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. It does not say why. It does not say why. And you could see somebody wanting to take this verse and take it out of context and say, oh, well, you know, God cursed her because of her uh, disrespect of her husband or some, you know, kind of misogynistic uh, thing. I don't think so. Somebody could say, oh, God cursed her because of her disrespect to God and she didn't care about the worship of God and God didn't bless her. Well, we're talking about Job on Sunday mornings. There's plenty of people that are doing just fine who curse the name of God. I, I can't tell you. My best guess is that it just speaks of a broken relationship, that David and Michael's relationship was irreversibly broken. And in a, in a time when they didn't have divorce in that way, especially if you're the king, um, they just functionally were divorced even if they were still married. That's what I think is going on there. Chapter 7, verse 1, the king settled into his palace. The Lord gave him rest from all his enemies around him. And Nathan the prophet came, and he said to Nathan, the king said to Nathan, here I am living in this house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. So, so basically what David is saying is, Nathan, I'm living in a big house. Things are good for me. But is it right that God's over there in this tent? I want to build a big temple for God. Why is that? Well, God never asked him to do it. And yet his heart is just, I want to honor God. But the only people that were building big temples like that were the, the, the pagans around him, those who did not honor God, those who worshiped idols. I think there's this sense that we look around and we think to really honor God, we have to do things like somebody else. And, and I don't think that's the case. I'm not here to rag on anybody else and what they're doing. But the, what are we about? And we could look around and say, well, we don't have this or we don't do that. But is that what we're called to do? Nobody was asking David to do these things. This was just what was in his heart. And Nathan goes, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And then that night, verse 4, the Lord came to Nathan saying, well, my pages are stuck together. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, and wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from a pasture, tending the flock, appointed you a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did in the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. Then the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you go to rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom, the one who builds the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all the words of this entire revelation. Now, what God is saying is, David, you want to build me a house? That's not for you to do. But I'm going to build you a house. And that house will be the house of the Messiah. That house will be the house of the kingdom that will never end. David, you want to do this great thing, but I'm going to do the great thing. I'm going to do the great thing. Now, somebody might ask a question about what it means uh, that when he does wrong, we're going to come back to that next time. We are at our 20 minutes here. So I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-minute Bible study. New episodes are released through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. That's where we have all of our audio content. The video version is available on our Facebook page. You can follow us at Faith on Hill, both Facebook and Instagram. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. I want to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.